What we'd like to see is that competition that we have at the data center extended out to the street address so that you just don't have one, two, or maybe even three internet service providers you can pick from. You have 40 internet service providers you can pick from. Hello, this is the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Tim Pozar joins us for episode 172. In addition to his role as Director of Operations for San Francisco-based Fandor, he's also a gentleman with decades of experience in the telecommunications industry and a strong advocate for network neutrality. Chris and Tim get into the nuts and bolts of open access this week. In addition to details on how open access can be delivered, the conversation turns to various ways open access can improve the competitive environment for consumers. Learn more about Tim's company at Fandor.com, and be sure to check out our many stories on open access at muninetworks.org. Now here are Chris and Tim Pozar discussing open access. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell. Today I'm speaking with Tim Pozar, the Director of Operations for Fandor, and I think more importantly for today's conversation, a a concerned citizen, community broadband advocate, and generally uh, interesting guy to talk to about open access. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, Tim, uh, you and I, um, I, I met with you one time when I was out in that area, and I've known of you from reputation, but uh, can you tell our listeners how, how is it that you've come to know so much about the Internet, and why should people listen to you as an expert? <laughs> well, let's see. I've, I've been playing in this industry for uh, quite a number of years. Um, I was uh, one of the early advocates of bulletin board systems. I was a developer with a, a bulletin board system called FidoNet way back when with a guy named Tom Jennings. Tom um, built out and developed FidoNet. We, uh, during those days, I, I wrote, co-wrote software that would hook FidoNet up to this thing called uh, Usenet and UUCP, which was also a, eventually a gateway to the Internet. Uh, and then eventually we, uh, uh, Tom and I co-founded a, uh, an ISP, an early ISP back in 1990 or so, uh, which we called Little Garden. And uh, so we had, I've been doing Internet stuff at least since the 80s, uh, mid-80s or so, um, and then somewhat of a serial entrepreneur. Um, after we sold Little Garden, I helped uh, with uh, a, a, network, a company called Internet Archive, Brewster Kale. I was one of the first director of operations there. And then I co-founded another company called Brightmail, which was an anti-spam company, um, that part of that, because we were very concerned about how spam was influencing the internet and how we can sort of manage it and uh, manage it for the future. So we um, eventually sold that company, and then uh, since then I've been doing other work, th- things like um, uh, I was a co-owner of a data center and ISP uh, in San Francisco, and uh, um, also. Uh, at, at, as you point out, I'm with a company called Fander, which does streaming videos. So we're definitely interested in things like, for instance, network neutrality, make sure that we can stream our videos as well as Netflix can, and it doesn't uh, take a whole pile of cash to be able to uh, compete with them. And one of the things that I've long associated you with is this idea of of open access networks. And uh, I think I'd like to ask you to, to get into this discussion by, by talking about the end. Um, if, if you're successful, and I think if many of the people who are interested in this model are successful, uh, what will the end result be? 
<laughs> it's really sort of based on the on the problem, the fact that um, we have incumbents, uh, which are just one or two players that are serving are the internet access providers for a community. In some cases, you have none. In one, some cases, you have one. In many cases, you'll have two. And what that does is that means that there's an artificial cartel uh, or, or monopoly in, in, in delivering internet access to um, street addresses. And I'd like to see more competition there because that will help reduce the cost. We can see this time and time again, looking at communities that have started their own broadband and how the incumbents react to that, as well as hopefully this addresses, again, things like network neutrality, because if one player is behaving badly, you have a choice to going to another player. Yes. However, I think your solution, you would not be as enthusiastic with uh, Google Fiber, for instance, which uh, in some ways accomplishes some of those goals of giving people another choice, but uh, doesn't really unlock what uh, I think we might hope would be a few, a true market of, of opportunities for entrepreneurs and, and others to provide ISP services, right? Let me sort of roll back. I, I mentioned that I was a, a co-founder of an ISP back in 1990, and and the sort of the model that I, I sort of give people to, so that they can sort of understand where we're trying to go on this is um, back then we were paying our upstream provider around five to $6,000 for a mega and a half worth of bandwidth to the internet. Of course, we weren't trying to push a lot of multimedia at that point. It was mainly very small email and things like that. So we could actually run an ISP off a T1's worth of bandwidth. But the cost in getting that t- that bandwidth from the provider to us was around $500. So about 90% of the cost of uh, connecting the internet was getting the broadband access. Now, data centers, you know, things have gone on, you know, 20 years have elapsed or so, and we have um, competition at the data center bringing that price down from five dollars to $6,000 per mega and a half down to 50 cents. So it's gone down about 10,000 times because at a data center, you have 30, 40 different ISPs out there all trying to compete to sell you bandwidth. We don't have the competition at the last mile. What we'd like to see is that competition that we have at the data center extended out to the street address so that you just don't have one, two, or maybe even three internet service providers you can pick from. You have 40 internet service providers you can pick from. Um, just having Google or some of their ISP building out fiber and going to the street address just means that instead of two people or two companies competing, you have three. So you don't have a real true competition, again, that you have at a data center. And I would actually add that um, I would be afraid that over a certain period of time, five, ten years, uh, you'd actually probably go back to two or maybe even one because we see this consolidation. And um, I wouldn't just take it for granted that we would still have those three for a long period of time. Yes, there, there is an aggregation of uh, ISPs. We saw this uh, early on in like the 2000s or so, uh, or actually the late 1990s. Um, a company called Vario went up and tried to buy every little mom and pop ISP out there. But you still see some ISPs out there, and they're still trying to compete. Um, uh, they've gotten smart enough to become CLEX. So there, I think we still have some diversity. For instance, at a data center at this point, if I go to a data center like 200 Paul in San Francisco, I can still go to 20 or 30 different companies and get bandwidth at that location. 
So let's talk about how to extend that out to the public. And and I think, you know, a lot of your examples, I suspect, will focus on San Francisco, but um, we'll be talking in terms of general concepts that would apply to any community. Uh, because I think a lot of communities would like to figure this out. And I, one of the first questions is, who's going to pay for it? And so in in your ideal world, who pays for extending this infrastructure? One of the, re- the reasons that you're not going to see a third or fourth uh, typically uh, ISP or, or company that's going to come out there and try to compete with the uh, the telephone company and the cable company means that there's going to be quite a bit of infrastructure that has to be deployed as to layer on top of the existing two. So in the case of I, I've I've heard numbers anywhere from seven hundred to two thousand dollars per street address for deployment. Um, at one point, Verizon FiOS was you know quoting like seven hundred ten dollars and. Um, I'm hearing up to 2,000. So it, it depends on on kind of the density of the city and, and uh, the type of architecture uh, that you're going to have to do. In other words, can you underground it? Can you fly it um, as an aerial cable? Obviously, aerial cable is going to be much cheaper. But what happens is that there's there's a chunk of change that has to happen, and that has to get paid back somehow. So even if you had a third or fourth company come in there that tries to come in, Typically, you're going to have an investor throwing money at this company and expecting some sort of return within, say, five or ten years so that they know that they, what they invested, they can get their money back on. Um, you have to keep in mind that if you're going to be the third company that's going to be competing in this, that means you're diluting the number of customers that are going to be connecting to. So best case, maybe you'll get a third of the customers or maybe you get a half. Um, and the other two companies will get the rest. Plus, you're going to have to compete in price. That means your profit margin has to be, or your end user price may have to go down uh, and undercut the other two. So your profit margin may likely be even less than what their existing profit margin is. All of this adds up to a return on investment that may not be five or ten years. It may be 20 or 30 years. So many investors are likely going to back away from that and say, yeah, we're going to throw our money in you know, something else that, that we can we can see the money back uh, much more quicker. So who are the other companies or organizations that have deeper pockets? And typically that usually goes falls onto government. And government usually has deep enough pockets and they usually have enough insight to be able to do a uh, 20 or 30 or even a 100-year project um, and understand how they're going to get their money back on that. So Many governments usually run um, businesses like sewer and water and uh, maybe, maybe in some, sometimes even run their own electricity and resell that. And um, in that case, what they'll do is they'll go out, raise bonds, so it, the money doesn't necessarily come out of the, the general fund, so it's not out of taxes and such, but they'll raise bonds. Um, they'll go out and deploy the infrastructure um, and charge appropriately for it. So what I'm hoping to see in organizations or towns like the city of San Francisco, and this is something that we've been trying to work with them on, is for them to create a fiber network, in other words, raise enough funds to possibly even cherry-pick to some degree to, to experiment to see how this works for them, and create a fiber network that goes back to a data center. So they become basically the layer two or the uh, transport provider 
to extend out the competition at the data center back out to the uh, the street address. And when you say cherry pick, I think it's important, um, just as something that I think about a lot, and uh, it's important to note that when one cherry picks, intentions matter. Um, when the term cherry pick could be used for an entity that might only build out to one area, the highest margin customers, and then refuse to go further. Uh, however, a different model that I think you'd be more supportive of would be one in which one merely does that as the first stage, recognizing that that will generate the revenue needed to push deeper and deeper and out into the higher cost areas or the areas where there's less demand. Exactly. I mean, what I'd like to see this done as is as uh, sustainable as possible. Uh, many times government will go out and, and create an infrastructure on good intentions, but find that the uh, infrastructure is just not sustainable and that, that they have to prop it up with um, uh, additional funds from the general fund or taxes or some other way to be able to subsidize effectively this infrastructure. I'd like to see this infrastructure as a whole run as uh, at least a break-even, if not a somewhat profitable organization. Now, we do this, again, we see this in, in cities where they usually have... Um, a business unit such as the water. In the case of the city of San Francisco, uh, the airport is run as an independent business unit. Uh, the port of San Francisco is run as an independent business unit. So admittedly, this is, this is kind of new territory, a new field for governments. They know how to run things like water pipes and sewers and things like that. But uh, extending this to putting glass in the ground and lighting them up that's kind of a new thing. I mean, they, they do this kind of on a small scale for hooking up their, their government buildings, but trying to do this to every single street address is a little new. And we actually have the numbers on it in terms of the number of cities that have done it. I just updated it, and we're tracking 90 communities um, across um, a somewhat smaller number of networks, probably on the order of 60, 65 networks that are doing municipal fiber to the home, and 180 uh, that I believe are doing uh, you know fiber to a few areas, not unlike um, San Francisco might be doing, um, where there's um, some limited availability for the private sector to lease it. And then I estimate in the high hundreds to low thousands uh, communities that are doing uh, fiber to anchor institutions. So, um, you know, it's something that has been growing rapidly, but it's still, I think, foreign for a lot of elected officials even to think along this line. Well, right. And, and I, I should say, and, and I, those, impre- those numbers are impressive, by the way. Those are much better than I remember about a year ago. The, um, most of this is rather foreign. The people who are going to make the decisions and pull the triggers, this, this concept is extremely alien to them. And they're also very cautious, too, because the, the main argument that I hear about this is, well, can't another – I mean, we don't necessarily want to prevent – uh, another, uh, or step in where competition can take over um, uh, along the lines of, you know, putting in a last mile. They, uh, but they don't get the fact that competition hasn't happened. Um, it hasn't happened for 20, 30 years. Um, and partially because the only reason that we have the, the current incumbents in there is because we have this sort of artificial uh, monopoly and a guaranteed profit margin for the telephone company and for the cable company through franchises and the fact that the telephone company was a uh, was a basically uh, a government sanctioned monopoly right i think a lot of people don't appreciate that 
There's very few examples one can point to of a large-scale telecommunication network being built without some form of monopoly. The Google uh, Fiber Network might be along the among the closest in terms of going into large cities in such high scale, but even Verizon's FiOS was basically built on the back of Ma Bell. Right. I mean, it was certainly subsidized and such. And, and then they finally said, well, I don't think we can make that enough money on it and, and stopped it. We're at a point now where we accept and, and we'd like to see local governments taking a more active role building the fiber out. Uh, one of the questions that I have is something that I've seen um, a number of people that have thought about this deeply have raised, which is if you have fiber in every to every home and it connects back to a data center, you may not be in that great of a position because almost every provider in that data center does not want to deal with individual users. Uh, they would prefer to aggregate it. They don't want to deal with people that are dropping and adding and, and changing their arrangements and moving and stuff like that. Um, how does it work practically in terms of making this work in the data center with all these uh, potential residential customers coming in? When uh, Google was pitching a, a wireless network for the city of San Francisco, um, which was kind of based on sort of archaic and, ar- and I mean, it's not archaic, but uh, older technology that we fought against. And this is the point in time where we discovered that there was quite a bit of abandon as well as um, fiber that, that the city of San Francisco had. And we said, well, gosh, instead of just doing this wireless deployment where you are running up against Shannon's law on how much bandwidth you can actually push through, why not use fiber? And so our original model was pretty much based on the OSI layers and the fact that we were thinking about an active Ethernet deployment to um, individual houses. Um, In that case, it was basically all um, software switch. It was being a a giant, um, you know, SDN in in effect. Um, And that's software-defined networking. Right. Sorry, thank you. (laughs) Um, In that case, you know, you would have you would basically have an Ethernet drop at your house and we would, um, or the city or whoever, would basically um, assign a VLAN or an MPLS uh, point-to-point circuit or whatever else that could be done to create a virtual circuit between the street address and the um, ISP at the data center. So in that case, the ISP, and some ISPs are very happy to work with individual customers and that are that you um, they're designed to work with individual customers as opposed to wholesale so they may have much better customer support they much you know as a, and and uh, maybe even uh, a much larger customer support so that they may even have to charge a little bit more but you're happy to go with them because you know you're going to be in better hands now, and for that, are you thinking about a company like Sonic, for instance, in the Bay Area, or <laughs> another kind of company? Um, yeah, actually, Dane, Dane is a friend, so I, I didn't want to necessarily sound like I'm plugging him. But uh, Sonic is, uh, and it's not just me. I mean, a number of other folks will will point to Sonic as being uh, um, a great example of a good customer support. And, um, and whereas when you call there, you're not necessarily hitting – uh, somebody in Bangkok or Bangalore or something else like that who has no idea who you are or even the network that they're trying to maintain. You right. actually hit somebody who can fix the problem, you know, like 90% of the time when you call them. 
Right. And I think there's a few others. I, mean, I think Ting is, is going in that model. X-Mission in, in uh, the Salt Lake City area certainly has that reputation. And so uh, there's a few like that, but frankly, not a ton. Right. Um, but I think Dane points it out. I mean, that he, uh, uh, because he has this great customer support and service, um, that uh, makes him relatively unique in the, in the field, and therefore people are going to come to him. Um, and if we can have enough competition out there, maybe somebody else will say, hey, you know, I like Dane's model. I'm going to do the same thing. So you don't see, uh, you don't think there's a technical challenge. There might be a little bit of a, of a challenge in terms of seeing more businesses that are going to recognize what a winning formula Dane Jasper has. Um, but there's no real technical difficulty in terms of taking a whole bunch of residential fibers and, and plugging them into different ports in the data center to be able to uh, pick and choose among different companies. So the original model was possibly a little na- naive. Um, I think it still could work. We, uh, Dane points out that the way that he is set up to manage, um, and I had a conversation, a couple of conversations with him about this, the way that he's set up to manage um, end users at this point is he really would like to be able to have control all the way to the prem. And his model he'd like to see is a, um, where he's going to be putting like an Adtran 5000 or something else like that that's going to actually do uh, pawn. Um, and I think you're, you're heading into dangerous territory with uh, <laughs> the, the jargon with some of our, our listeners. But yeah. um, basically you're talking about um, gear that would allow him to, um, to, to use the line basically. And there's different ways of doing that. And he has his preference for the gear and he wouldn't want to be uh, operating on network using gear that was unfamiliar or inferior to what he was used to. Or out of his control. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, his model would be that you, you know, he may, um, he may release bandwidth to a neighborhood, he would put his own gear in and then light the glass that goes into the, um, into the prem for, uh, within the neighborhood. Right. So, so, so for instance, it would not be, um, you know, you wouldn't have a fiber from my house that a single fiber that runs all the way back to the central, um, you'd run to a neighborhood aggregation point and, and, and that's where Dane would have his equipment. Right. So the concern at that point is, is that, well, you know, if you only have one piece of glass going in um, and that just hooks up to Dane, well, how do you have the competition again? And, and so Dane and I talked about this for quite a while. And we said, well, what happens if we put three pieces of glass into a prem? So as you know, you only need one strand to light up pawn. And, and pawn is just passive optical network. It just uh, basically allows you to take a strand and split it among multiple parties. Right. Well, I um, Right, multiple end users or customers, right. So if, say for instance, we had two extra strands and those go back to the neighborhood um, aggregation point. So I could see having a scenario where you have Dane having equipment at that aggregation point, uh, maybe another ISP, we'll just call it B, having the same thing. So if a customer says they really want to be able to switch off of Dane onto ISP B, they would or uh, contact ISPB and then basically move the equipment from or, or get other CPE equipment, you know, customer prem equipment, and plug it into this second um, strand that's coming into the prem. And that works because the, the cost of the fiber itself, you know, doing um, three, uh, three fibers to every home rather than one is basically the exact same cost. 
you know, as you're probably your customers and your the listeners know, uh, the, you know, 99% of the cost is basically digging it up and penetrating into the building and pulling it and you know, doing all that other stuff. The, the fiber is relatively insignificant cost. So there's one other scenario to that. So if you don't want to be spending a bunch of money to light up a neighborhood aggregation point, I was thinking that you could have something similar to kind of like a hybrid of what we talked about with the, um, with which was our original idea, which was an active Ethernet. So what would happen if, say, for instance, that third strand was lit by say, an, a company that all they do is light up the, the, the last mile or last you know 100 feet or whatever it takes to get from the aggregation point to the prem. And what they do is they do the cross-connect back at the data center. Um, so that one piece of glass that goes into the prem gets somehow attached to, a, again, an MPLS circuit or a VLAN or whatever that goes back to... Um, uh, where the bandwidth is being picked up at the data center. So a small ISP that doesn't want to go out and spend a, a chunk of change for neighbor, neighborhood aggregation gear could, could use that other um, scenario as kind of an, another transport mechanism. Oh, okay. So there's, you have uh, multiple options basically um, throughout the, the network. Right. So you could either be like Dane, where he's going to put his own gear at the neighborhood aggregation point, or you can be uh, leasing that neighborhood aggregation point bandwidth and gear from somebody else who is in the service of reselling that to multiple ISPs. And would you see this as something um, in terms of how the homeowner might pay for it? Would they be um, maybe making one infrastructure payment to the city and another payment to an ISP? Or would it all go to the ISP and the ISP would remit back to the city? Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on different arrangements for paying for it? Well, I see, I see this infrastructure is hopefully wholly owned by the city of San Francisco or whatever municipality this goes into. And so at that point, I'd rather probably not mix the money up with selling it, I mean, paying back another ISP or having that ISP try to subsidize the cost because I'm, I'd be concerned about conditions placed on, on the fiber and the equipment. Um, so typically, a lot of communities are in the effort of trying to underground uh, facilities. So I think this is probably a great time um, to build out that infrastructure. City of San Francisco at this point has a major effort to underground um, aerial facilities like in the Sunset and various other locations around San Francisco. And also they have a 100-year-old um, sewer and water infrastructure that they know that they have to replace very quickly. So in the case of San Francisco, this is a grand time to, to, um, to exploit that. That may not necessarily be the case for uh, a facility or a neighborhood that was built out, say, in the 50s or in the 60s. In that case, um, you know, you may already have undergrounded utilities, and putting this kind of thing in, you'd have to probably do an, another dig. And that could, you, that's going to be a little bit more costly, and you're not going to be able to aggregate that with other projects. 
One of the things that I often think about is that um, communities, I think, are looking at solutions or trying to figure out how to do this in the next three to four years. And, and I think that's that's nice in the sense that it's, it is a high priority, and I'd love to have it at my house today, not in three or five years, or certainly not 10 years. Um, but it's also, there's a, a sense of, um, you know, if we just get started doing something, that will be better than this, this just waiting forever and then trying to figure out, oh, can we do a very high-cost project? Um, probably not. Um, so I've been encouraging cities to take incremental approaches, saying, you know, our goal will be to connect everyone. However, we're going to start with phase one and phase one is going to connect X, Y and Z. And phase two will, you know, go further. Um, and I'm curious what you think about that kind of approach, um, whether that's just basically setting us up, us up for um, a potential failure if in three years they decide they're, they're done with it and they're not going to build anymore. Well, I, th I think actually it makes much more sense. Um, I mean, you can do – there's a couple different scenarios. Either you sort of like make a commitment to light up every single street address, um, and that's going to be a, a large amount of money. Uh, in the case, again, for city of San Francisco, you're talking about a quarter, mil quarter billion, if not a half a billion dollars, to, to do that kind of deployment. Um, that's going to be hard to finance. It's going to be hard to execute – Plus, by the time you're done with it, you'll probably said, you know, I really wish we did this this way when we started doing our deployment. So I really like the idea of saying, and I, I used the word cherry pick earlier, and maybe what I, I, I should say is low-hanging fruit. In order to be able to get the expertise under the belt of the Department of Technology or whatever organization that's going to be doing that within the city, plus it will develop um, or make room or give a runway to uh, getting whatever regulatory and organization issues out of the way. Um, we talked about the fact that politicians are really nervous about putting political cred online. And if you say you're, you need about a half a billion dollars to do this project, they're going to get scared off. So if you could come up with it and say, listen, you know what, for a couple mil, we could probably put fiber within these several blocks and we can see if this works. And if it does, then we can go back and likely a politician or, or the mayor or whoever else is likely going to be able to get behind it better. I like that. And I've been advocating that. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear that. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your thoughts. Uh, you've been thinking about this for a long time in terms of how to solve our competition problem and build the infrastructure of the future. Thank you, Chris. That was Tim Pozar, Director of Operations for Fandoy.com, talking with Chris about open access. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Community Nets. If you use Facebook, you can find us by searching for Community Broadband Networks. Once again, we want to thank BKFM B-Side for their song, Raise Your Hands, licensed through Creative Commons, and thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>